In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So let's take you back to youth group in the 1990s, maybe early 2000s for you, Allison. Is that? Yeah, I need to go <laughs> like a little later. Um, 1990s I, was I, not this youth is, this for is, me. This is, uh, this is difficult for me to say because uh, you were both like young women at the time. Hi, Allison. Indeed. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Todd. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if this was the way it was for you, but the young men in youth group mm-hmm. were told they could change the world. Were you told you could change the world? No. Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just... Um, what? And uh, I, th- I... Yeah. Changing You know, what? because Why? we could Why be like the next Billy Graham or something. I think we're still looking for the next Billy Graham. Oh, some people. Wait, Some people. Let's back up. I'm not sure I endorse are looking that. For the next Billy. Are we going to do but pursuit? what this has 2.0? to do... Okay, let me back up <laughs> and then maybe, maybe I can invite the young women from the 90s into the conversation. Because if you weren't invited to change the world, the word here that we're playing with for this episode of Rector's Cupboard is vocation. So for young men, often growing up, you know, evangelical Christian, Mm. your vocation is you can change the world. You can, for young women, the vocational promise was... You can have a family. You can be the best mom. Which is not a bad It is certainly not. It's It's just only one... I, I hesitate to use the word choice. There. So I can change the world. By Do I get to have a, a family? Good, yeah. Career. But, the, you have but a career. for me, the family is not vocation in that. No, that's frame. your wife's vocation. No, but you should be a, a godly man. Oh, well, I am. And choose a godly woman. Okay, so. Who will bear your children. Oh. So, and support you so that you can go rule the, sorry, change the world. So in our, thank you. In and, our, um. <laughs> In our, I'm going to use the same word again, frame of hopeful gospel, hopeful theology that we play with with Rector's Cupboard, a very central concept, or one of the key concepts, is that of vocation. What does it mean, particularly in faith, uh, in understanding of faith, to have vocation? And one of the people that we draw from a lot, Karl Barth, uh, talks about how we all have vocation, um, even in terms of our relationship or our place with God in the world, uh, our vocation to reflect God's goodness. The reason I'm bringing this up is our guest today and in the interview. Uh, I met Jay Alcana at a prayer breakfast of yeah, all Yeah, that you and I were at. Sitting beside Jay, and we get chatting, and I realize he d- doesn't just look like, you know, kind of the stereotypical <laughs> person who's at a provincial leader's prayer breakfast. I think he probably had a scarf on. He looked. I think he, he looked, does enjoy scarf. He looked, and this is no disdain for the others, but he looked interesting. And so I thought, I think I'd like to talk with this guy. We got talking. I feel like he, he might be like 
isolating some of our, our listeners. He realized, yeah, that's true. You are wondering now, does Todd think oh, I no. look interesting? All the khaki golf shirts just hit stop. Um, the uh, Should I point the, out, I was at a different table. Amanda was there as yeah, well. She just wasn't sitting with it. A table with you were another too, right? organization. Everybody was from the same organization but except all, for you. Clearly not interesting but looking. I was just say, did they no. look interesting, no. Amanda? Well, I'm not saying that people weren't interested. Anyway, Jay and I got talking. <laughs> he realized that, oh, the idea of faith that most people, maybe a lot of people here seem to have, maybe taught us a slightly different one. And so we got talking. We've met a number of times since. He's an architect. He's in the world of design. And we invite him on the podcast because uh, of this matter of vocation. I realized in speaking to Jay, when he's designing something, when he's designing a, a place or an office or a house or whatever, the kinds of questions that he's asking around humanity, uh, around blessing, and the spiritual questions that he's asking are really, really interesting to me, and I think proved interesting to us as we spoke with oh, him. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. But so great. I want to, in our kind of time here before the interview, talk about a couple of concepts or hear from you guys a couple of concepts. One is, the first one is this. If someone doesn't believe just the way that you were shown you were supposed to believe in a youth group or church or whatever, then how much can you learn from, listen to them? You know, some of those danger things that come up? Like, yeah. here's this person, we're presenting them, we're even bringing them in because we think we can benefit from their ideas in our faith and in our living out of faith. And then they say something that is just like, well, that's not how I see it. Mm. What do you do there? And Jay brings some of that because he brings some non-conventional ways of seeing things that I think are just tremendous. Um, but it's that kind of like, do you do you think the same ways on all things? Of course not. Um, and then the second question is, the second thing to talk about is, what is vocation? Yeah. So um, going back to domestic, you guys recently watched some of the Martha Stewart special oh, on CNN. What do you think? Who's that? Martha Stewart. <laughs> Martha. Martha. Yeah, she released an album with Snoop Dogg or something, right? No, I don't know anyway, if she, she... I think she's friends with him. Yeah, she... They do stuff. <laughs> I mean, I... I think she's a very polarizing figure because I think there are, are a number of people who absolutely love her. And I think particularly kind of... Like, she kind of did a bit of a recreation of herself post-prison. So most of our listeners know who Martha Stewart is, do you think? I, I would think so. So she's like I mean, she's a like lifestyle Oprah. brand before influencers, yes, they, they, before she, before she huge empire. Became a powerhouse at the same time Oprah did. Yeah, they had that right. same uh, the TV show yep. and the magazine, magazine that every month featured their face. But in Martha Stewart's case, a lot of it is around like domestic domesticity, yeah. the yeah. house, but the I, garden. Just to say, I think everybody actually knows okay, who good. she is <laughs> in some way, shape, good. or form. Yeah. Um, so, and you were saying she's polarizing. I think so. Or people's responses um, are at least. Or yeah, maybe that's a better way of phrasing it is that people's response to her are polarizing. Some like there's a lot of people who I think find um find her inspirational. And like I think she she has a beautiful sense of design. Like I, I think that's probably not a thing that most people would contest. That even if they don't go like, well, it's not necessarily my taste. She has she has an eye. She does have an eye. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um what was your kind of I think that some people can also view her negatively. Like I Amanda, so. is I that think, more your experience with her? Um, I think that she's a brilliant mind. And I think I agree in that uh, she has a good eye. She has a good sense of design. But it's not just inspiration, it's aspiration. Mm. I think that she created this image of perfection 
And even though she didn't necessarily say, this is what you need to be, that's how people received it. And it's certainly how culture kind of created... Hang on, back up there. You, so people felt pressure. I think so. But they didn't have to do it. They certainly it. didn't have to. No, but that's what culture mm. created. But and so if then you're kind of like trying to live up to the neighbor frame, type of thing. Totally. She was right. the original influencer. Because now, I mean, if you go on TikTok, if you fall down the right rabbit hole, you're going to find a whole slew of people who have beautiful, perfect homes that are organized in incredible ways. And then I start watching these old, this archival footage of Martha yeah. Stewart. Realize, and I'm like, oh, so much of it came from oh there. Oh my goodness, this is where that came from. It's, yeah. But it's aspiration, is what my house should look like. Um, you recently talked about an article that ha- um, was talking about the laundry chair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. like, <laughs> give yourself permission to have a chair yes. full of laundry. Oh, Martha Stewart has a laundry chair. Of course she does, but, but you don't. She's you're not going to get a picture it. of it. You are never it's going curated, to see that and she would say that it's curated. But what she said, I saw some of the same special. Uh, a CNN deal and what she said when because in that special there are multiple people who ask her that question say like oh everybody feels like they have to be perfect now yeah. that you're doing your thing she's like and she said something along the lines of well I don't that's not my business she said my business is why not if people want to make a space beautiful and and she wanted mm-hmm. to show people that you can do things that was part of the deal right was that this was accessible these to the everyday person. Let me show you how. Now, but I think upper and middle class, that's the maybe, thing. This or is where class. she's kind of polarizing because people blame her for creating that idealization of perfection. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at the words that she said or she shared in a magazine, so that's actually not what she was trying to go for, but right. that's what culture created. Well, and that's and the how the time frame is, is incredible because then if you look at like 90s youth group and yeah. the striving for. I don't want to say perfection, but the way that mm. you should approach your faith and the way that girls should behave versus the way boys should behave, it all coincides. Well, like, there's like a Venn diagram that's somewhere I mean, that you could create. I, that's like I, I was, I was young in the '90s, and so I don't know how much I, I felt that kind of in that like height, height of Martha Stewart stuff. I'd be interested to ask mm. my mom, but I mean, going far back in the Rector's Cupboard archive, when we interviewed my mom all those years ago, and she, like she talked about in in the faith community that she was a part of the the expectation that she felt for having a perfect family Mm. and so I would imagine that something like Martha Stewart even if it's not intended which I mean there, there could probably be debate over how much of that was intended but even if it's not that that would feel like additional pressure I think that's really interesting what both of you are bringing out that the it's it's a largely non-religious version of some of the pressure mm-hmm. oh, I that think so. people felt. That it, was, it was absolutely part of the religious culture, but it was also part of pop culture. Right. It was, yeah. So you, it, back to the kind of initial question of like, do you want to change the world? Um, one of the interesting talking to somebody like Jay is if you look at, you watch that special, you look at what Martha Stewart did, and you don't, sometimes you don't realize it until it's like in retrospect, she changed the world. Now, I'm not putting a value statement on it, positive or negative, but... Impactful. In terms of how people see their own spaces, their own kind of Mm -hmm. places. It also, she talked about how she was all about that domestic environment and making it beautiful and creating a home. And and one one of the threads in the special is that as she's doing that, her own marriage falls apart, mm. which she talks about is very difficult given what she was trying to do. And right? it, it also falls into that, um, the pressure for women of you can do it all. Yeah. Era, yeah. Right. And she was that, right. She had this huge empire, this multimedia yeah. business. Um, and then was also like roasting chickens and raising chickens. And, and, uh, and it perpetuates this idea yeah. for women 
who, I mean, we're really only a few decades out of them even entering the workforce in a real kind with, of yeah. career way, so to speak. Really interesting. And I think, um, And yeah. that pressure of like, you can do it all. You can raise the family. You can have a perfect house. You can make sure that you have really excellent meals uh, on the table for your children and your husband, um, but also have like a super great job somewhere. Yeah. Um, well, it's great conversation and it, it's interesting television for mm. sure. And thinking of that and then thinking of our interview uh, coming up here in a couple of minutes, uh, this whole concept of vocation and call, mm. um, not looking to kind of Christianize everything and say, you know, this thing is Christian and this thing is not, or this thing mm. is like, here's a, here's a religious vocation as opposed to a non-religious vocation, but bigger than that, that sense of your spiritual life and how what you do matters in the world. There's no doubt in speaking mm. with Jay that oh, yeah. he has a technical ability, the actual ability to do what he's doing professionally, mm -hmm. but um, there is a, a sense of call that he feels in how, yeah. how he can impact well, the world and for good. And I think almost like in defense of, of Martha Stewart in some ways, like I think I can have a, a reasonably uh, positive um perspective of her just because I didn't feel that pressure from her mm. um so I don't have that kind of baggage there and Jay talks about this in our interview as well where he does talk about things in aspirational ways of wanting to go even if this can't happen now we still can talk about but this is how things could yeah. be mm -hmm. so there is part of that I also want to be very careful that I don't want to rip on people who have either through choice or through necessity that particularly for women who are like the majority of their life and their work is in their homes. I don't want to devalue that in any way. Of course. Um, and I don't think, I hope that people wouldn't hear that, but I feel I like it's not. really easy to, to kind of go off on that. I'm like, no, I, I think that women should be able to have a choice that that isn't where they find that. But I don't want People I think it's who, interesting yeah. you bring up that thing that, that Jay was talking about, the aspiration, and it's, you know, to dream. Yeah. In the Martha Stewart and what does that yeah, mean? She um, episode, she actually, in one of her interviews, I can't remember who was interviewing her, was talking about, you know, the push for perfection and things like that. And all she said is, it, why shouldn't we have an avenue to dream of what can be, what your home could look like, or what entertaining could look like one night? It doesn't need to be every night. It could be something special. Um, so in defense of Martha... <laughs> Uh, it, it's much like what Jay was saying. Like, why can't you look at something and see the potential beauty in it? Wow. Mm -hmm. um, now you're yeah. now you're pointing towards a kind of Christian theological theme, like an, an eschatological sense <laughs> of what's the future. Um, and of course, in Christian yeah, in Christian yeah. theology, well you'd say that that the future is determined in hope and in renewal, yeah. and that we work that out even in our vocation. And we would say, as you're listening mm -hmm. to this interview, just uh, listen for those contours, those places that connect with you in what you're doing. And another kind of religious word we would say: uh, bless you in your work, whether you consider it, um, you know, religious or not. Those ways that you feel that sense of how what you're doing can make a difference. So thanks very much, and we hope you enjoy the interview. Yeah. Well, we're very pleased and privileged to be joined by our guest today. Jay Elkanah is a licensed architect in BC with AIBC. He's the principal 
at Shui Architecture and Design Studio. He has his master's in architecture from Dalhousie University. He's also a certified passive house designer and was formally trained in Japan with Kengo Kuma and So Fujimoto. And so people who are interested in architecture will Go look them up. know some of those yeah. names. Uh, Jay, thanks for joining us. So glad to have you here. And Jay and myself and Allison to some degree yes, and Amanda yes. as well. Hi, you two. Hello. Well, uh, Amanda oh, doesn't have off a mic. mic. Do you um, want to lean into mine? I'm good. And uh, Hello. we've had some conversation already about what we're here to speak about. Uh, and largely that is the concept of vocation and spirituality, work and spirituality, work and faith. And in my previous conversations with Jay, I uh, found kind of a, so many things that were kindred spirit, that, yeah. that our work has to do with uh, spirituality. And so we're going to talk about some of that. So thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> yes, welcome, Jay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. So, I mean, we'll just start off by saying, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, vocation-wise, work-wise? Um, I mean, it sounds really interesting, like having talked to you a bit, um, some of the projects that you're working on and how you kind of got connected with those. Like, yeah, how did you get to where you are now? Well, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And I'll give you the short answer of that one. Um, so I... I had, was living in Tokyo about a, a little over a decade ago, and I was doing a lot of creative work. And I, I met a gentleman, and he came to my studio, and I was doing a lot of mixed media stuff, and he said to me, you know, have you ever thought about architecture? Architects mm. really need to be able to understand a variety of different things, right? The social, the financial, the, the political, all of these building sciences. And um, I took his advice, and I applied. And uh, got into some architecture school and haven't looked back since. Um, I had the opportunity when I left uh, school to, um, to work on really big projects, towers and schools and that sort of thing. And working at, at that scale, I found that um, although I enjoyed design, it really was a challenge to connect with the people that were going to be using the space. Uh. And I found that uh, the relationships that were really really uh, valuable, or really, I shouldn't say valuable, all relationships are valuable. The relationships that I found that were very fruitful were the relationships with the city. Because the city hmm. would, um, they would, in some ways, they wouldn't be the client, but they would kind of be the gatekeeper. And so they would be yeah. kind of representing the people. So it was a really nice time to get in, intimate with them and understand what, what their real sort of uh, desires were for the project. And, uh, and that went on for about eight years, mm. working on projects like that. And then I started my own studio about two years ago. Oh, wow. Wow, so yeah. really very new. Yeah, it is very new. It's, and um, it's interesting because for me, working on a larger scale is what I'm used to. And then starting your own, my own studio, it's been like the, on the exact opposite side, the smallest <laughs> scale. And it's yeah. now I, I don't struggle meeting client or uh, speaking with my clients because I talk with my clients all the time. Yeah. There's no separation there, and it's been a real joy. And it's it's something that actually that I didn't know was possible. Working in a, I would always thought that I'd always be in a, you know, at a distance. Yeah. And now working with people as closely as I am, it's actually really um, energized the studio. Yeah. The work that we're doing now. I mean, I think all architects, our goal is to do the best work that we can. But I find when we're so close with people, um, that really adds like a, 
like multiple dimensions to the work, hmm. a multiple layering to and it, like your material choices, how space is aligned, how it's going to be used. And when you're speaking with the user or the future user all the time about that, and also not necessarily about the space, but learning about them, that really adds to the toolbox for us to create a design that's going to help them and encourage them to be the person that they aspire to be. That's fantastic. When, when you mention working on the big projects, the Mm. big buildings, and I mean, what I picked up as you were saying that was it's easy at times with these big things, big machines of some kind, right. Mm. To feel a distance from the, the human aspect of it. And I think that, um, I, I'm even thinking of somebody I know who's a plumber, right? And he, and he much more enjoys the work, this the smaller work. Again, go and work in someone's house fixing a thing. But so much of the work early on is literally just Commercial, repeat, 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 yeah. repeat in, mm. in units in some huge tower or something, right? And how that is, you'd use words like soul-destroying or something if you mm-hmm. were trying to be too critical of it. It's interesting to me that you mentioned, though, in that work, you appreciated the connection with the city, mm-hmm. which really sounded more to me like people with a vision and a desire. So all that to lead to this question of, and I want to keep it big for a minute, so if sure. it's, or for a few minutes, if it's, um, how would you respond to the question, like how does spirituality inform your work? Or wh- where is, because I can see it already in these, in these answers. Mm-hmm. How is your work spiritual to you? Um, what are some of the things that connect there? I think the first thing that comes to mind when I, hear that question is it's more of how I see it in some way kind of like an order of operation Mm. the question I see I hear it as sort of like how does spirituality inform my work but more of I see it as more of like spirituality is sort of the the center of, of of all of us we're all spiritual creatures correct and how that architecture is just kind of a hang on to that right like it's it's so uh, approaching people as and we've talked about i love the way you say that that's fantastic (laughs) so you know i never i i try not to introduce myself as an architect right i try to introduce myself as someone who practices architecture right to remove that identity of i am an architect and it's important because when we remove that identity it it the more identities that we carry all identities. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a man, yeah. I'm this yeah. age, blah, blah, blah. And I think the more that we can move away from those identities and get into a conversation with someone else, those identities in some way get in the way of us connecting as human beings. And so when we're able to connect closer as a human being, you and I, and then I know your history, what you've, what you've spent your life yeah. doing, right? So what you've spent your life doing, you're going to have experience, you're going to have skills, you're going to have tools with that. And same with me. Yeah. And so when we can connect on a, on a human level, and then now we start saying, are these are the tools that I have. Right. I, I have, you know, I've, I've worked, I've designed, I've designed some things. I've helped people <laughs> do, I've helped people have find shelter. I've, I've done these sort of things. I understand what materials do. And so now it's the... Our human connection, which establishes an avenue to speak about, and for me to understand what what is it that you need, and what are, and can my skills help you? And I'm talking about it in a general way, but I think it can be applicable to almost any sort of service that we provide to each other. And I think mm-hmm. part of um, 
um, I'll make a broad statement about this. I feel that when we are able to attune to our spiritual selves, there, in everyone's journey, I would imagine, I felt it myself, you, there's a point where service becomes something that we lead with. Mm. Service to others, right? When we are attuned, we realize that we're connected to, to more. To, we're connected to each other always. And so when I'm connected to you, there is a real joy and there's a real mm, mm-hmm. richness to be able to serve and to serve with the skills that I have. What can I do to help your life? It's fantastic. And um, yeah, I, I, I love how you draw there. <laughs> it's, it's a design. It's, it's an answer that has design to it. Um, that you said initially that like architecture just kind of hangs on to this bigger mm-hmm. thing. And then the note that you don't introduce yourself as an architect, but someone who practices architecture because of the awareness of that, mm-hmm. of that bigger yeah. thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's beautiful how you describe that and the, the way that, that it sounds to me is there's almost like, like you, you've learned this set of skills. You have these tools, you have, these these things that um, that you you do well at or that you see maybe in a different way, and it's almost like a creative, like a playfulness mm-hmm. that that I'm hearing. In that you're like, how how do I take all these things which can be used to build whatever mm-hmm. could be like office structures? Like mm-hmm. you, you clearly have the capability to like design those things, but you're taking those skill sets and you're going, how do I make something that serves like the humanity of the person that I'm currently like relating to and connecting to? And you're, you're I, just, nailing it. Yeah. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and I mean, I feel like you've already answered our next question about like what makes you feel the most alive. I feel like that connection <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. is the answer. Am I, am I right in that or? Yeah, for sure. To connect, I think is the source of life, right? 100% to connect with each other, to connect with God, divine, whatever word you use to describe mm-hmm. that, that connection is, is, is life force, right? Mm-hmm. We, you, you hear it in a variety of different fields of medicine, uh, a variety of different religions, a variety of different things, right? It's like the life force. And how do you tune into that? And I think there's that question that everyone is always asking, but it's actually a very simple thing. It's like, like be open to the world and the reality that you live in and connect, mm-hmm. Co- connect, connect without, without the identity of I am an architect. So I can, it is, I have skills Yeah. and can I offer something to you? Can I help you? That's it. And if I can't help you, that's that's also okay. Do you find that depending on the kind of projects that you're working on, mm. be they more like a residential project where you're helping with someone's home or a space that they're going to live in, mm-hmm. do you find that you relate differently than if you were going to be doing more of a commercial space? I know you said you connected mm-hmm. with like the city and stuff, but mm-hmm. like is... Is there a difference for you? Like, do you prefer doing more residential stuff versus more commercial? Or are there ways in which the commercial still has those same sort of aspects of connection and humanity and Mm -hmm. those sorts of things? So my answer is going to sound generic, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) 
we'll so, decide. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't. I would say that my work does it. It doesn't categorize. I mean, obviously, it has to categorize between residential and commercial. It does. But how I approach it, I would say that it's not so much the residential versus commercial as it's my work is client-based. And so am I able to, or are we able to, to create a relationship in which that we can communicate on a level, on, on a variety of different levels? Can we communicate on very basic scheduling, costs, these sort of things? Sure. But can we also connect on how we feel? On Can we connect on what we where we where we're sitting in our reality right now can we can we have these conversations last time actually we uh we were chatting um i remember i I wasn't feeling very centered that day oh when we were up for coffee when we were up for coffee and and i and i remember one of the first things i had said to you i said you know like i'm i'm great i'm good but i'm feeling a bit uncentered today and i think the to be able to have the relationship with somebody that you're working on such an elaborate project. Architecture projects are elaborate. Oh, yes. Small, big. Even like, small projects, yes. yeah. They're incredibly elaborate. They take so much from so many different things. And <laughs> and anyways, they're very, very challenging. And so to be able to be, to set the plane for the project group to say, hey, yeah. you're a human being. Mm-hmm. I'm a human being. This is how I'm feeling today. This is... This is what I can bring to the table. How can we make this work? And treat it, in architecture, we deal in scale. And I like to talk about scale, but I like to talk about scale and time. So scale meaning that we talk about things that are very detailed, mm-hmm. things that maybe are more like the, the human scale, and then like the building scale, like the, the tower. Yeah. And I think it's also, in terms of time, it's important to think about this too, right? The scale of the minute, the scale of this conversation, the scale of our... For for example, in a project, the scale of our weekly meetings, the scale of our monthly our monthly milestones, the scale of the years that's going to take to finish this project, mm-hmm. and considering time at different scales allows us to have a different sets of tools for the same project. So it's almost like you have the mini scale toolbox working, and the mid scale toolbox working, and then the largest mm-hmm. scale toolbox working. It's really client based. It's not so you really can present. you can then picture mm-hmm. as you're asking these questions of humanity and design, and you can picture how that relates to people, to humanity, in the residential setting, but also in the commercial setting. Of course, because it's only it, they're names we give to these things. Yes, but they're just places where people are going to be. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. not, that, right? That's a great it's like point. It's the wrong yeah. way to categorize space. things. Yeah, yeah. 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 The and the fact gets, that we call it commercial, yeah. Yeah. now there's a person in this space and they're a different person than yeah, they yeah, are in the right. residential exactly. space. It's how yes. it is that... The, I, had, I was thinking of... We've used a fair bit this book called What Can a Body Do by Sarah Hendren. It has okay. to do with design and disability, mm-hmm. this book. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm conscious of the fact that some of what... So she writes about how spaces are designed. She goes to a very famous school for the deaf in New York City mm-hmm. and talks about design and how walls are low and like so the, the visual kind of field and different things. And really interesting in terms of space. But one of the things that she speaks about a lot over and over again is time and how different concepts of time relate to our humanity. Yeah. So then she ha- she happened to have a son who has Down syndrome mm-hmm. after her interest in disability research and design and stuff. So then she describes, she says, you know, 
the concept of time that dictates most of our understanding in the West here and it is productivity and kind mm-hmm. of... Mm-hmm. So if we look at how we judge other, ourselves and other people, so let's say you have young adult children or something, right? Mm-hmm. So much, or even little kids, so much is like based on... Um, key developmental markers, they're dominated by time. Like, sure. did my child reach this milestone in time? Yeah. Did they crawl? Did they walk? Did they speak? Did they? Yes. Are they going to university? Are they going to, right? So I'm thinking of how concepts of time um, impact positively and negatively our sense of humanity. What about for space? That's my question. How, like, you're now designing. Sure. You studied in Japan. That's right. You had a lot of these things have to do with how we perceive space, what it means to be human in a space. Yes. What what do you do in that work? You must project that all the time. Picture people in a space. Yes. And what it is that, like, how does design relate to our humanity, space and light and mm-hmm. this kind of thing? Well, I like that you, you led with uh, this woman writing about abilities. And scale is so... This is good. This is a great question. I like this question. <laughs> so if we talk about, let's talk about the relationship between scale of time and our physical abilities. Okay. Okay. So right now we've all woken up this morning and we have a set of abilities, right? We're all, we're all walking, we're talking, we're feeling fine. Um, but the, the thing about that is our bodies are in constant flux. Our bodies... Sometimes we feel tired, sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're cranky, sometimes our knees hurt, sometimes our hair falls out, sometimes our hair grows back. It's all, it, it happens, right? Time, and so our abilities change through time. And I like to give the example, so when, when an injury happens to us, suddenly you break your leg. So a second before you broke your leg, you were able, able-bodied right? You're able to walk. Now, a second after, you cannot walk, right? So that sudden change in our ability reminds us that our abilities are in actual flux. But it's sometimes, mm-hmm. I think it's, it takes a time to pause and say, you know, actually our bodies are constantly changing. My abilities are constantly changing. My mental abilities are changing. My physical abilities are changing. So when we think about that in terms of time, of scale, of like, you know, some people are very productive at 10 a.m. Other people are <laughs> sleeping at 2 p.m. It's at yes. the same 25 on the scale of the day, right? So our right. abilities are changing. And so how that relates to space yeah. is this, the space that we're designing has to be sensitive to the, the human beings that right. it's going to be serving. They're not static mm-hmm. machines. They are changing with their own, just our own internal environment, we're constantly changing. And so, and not on top of, we still have the physical environment. We have the four seasons. We have night. We have day. We have, right. we just, have... Just how light Temperature works differences. in space. Right. Mm, yeah. yeah, how light changes, right? Light is very much different in the winter than it is in the summer. It's very much different in the day than it is in the, in the night, right? And so how all of that then gets put on top of the 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 human system and to and to to think about that so the thing with design is that although that especially in architecture the end result is is a is a built safe dry warm structure right. and it's like you can see the lines and it's there but to to get there it takes a lot of mm, openness and unknown to let that space be filled the deliverable is sharp, but mm-hmm. yet what goes into creating that deliverable, there's a lot of open-ended 
let's see. Let's consider this. Let's consider the let's consider this that this will be used in the summer. Let's consider that there are young children going to be using this, but at the same time there has to be a limit to our considerations and say at the end of the right. day it still has to be a physical thing that you built. You that you built and that they are going to experience and yeah. and the beautiful thing that I think in design is when obviously well, not obviously, but I do, pro- I do project. What would it be like in here? What would it be like? But the greatest thing, I, one of the greatest things about seeing one of your projects that you've done, that it's completed, is that to watch how it's being used in ways that you've never imagined. Ah. Could you right. give us an example? Uh, well, well, I can't, I, the first example that comes to mind is, is kind of a, a funnier example. It's not of my work, but just generally speaking. So I grew up skateboarding. And, uh, and so I grew up bef- like before skate parks were around and right. skateboarding was sort of like the hooligan right. thing to do. Well, right? It was really cool. It was really <laughs> cool. It was really cool. <laughs> um, but so the thing about that is as a, as skateboarders, you would look at the city and you would look at things to, I could do something on that. I could jump off that. I could slide on that. And when I think about that, there was no way at that point in time that that architectural team or the city was thinking, <laughs> a, you know, someone's going to use that as a place of, of joy, of a place of physical expression, right? And so I think for me, that's the first thing that comes that's to mind. That's amazing to think that because now they've built, of course, handrails that have little so that notches in them or something. Exactly, so you can't right? Do that. Yeah, they, so they have to think like, They've considered it now. <laughs> we have to stop this imaginative possibility. Yes. I had a question from your previous answer um, when you talk about thinking of the human in terms of space and design mm-hmm. the dynamics of that, how bodies change even in a day, yes. uh, let alone our ability, disability, whatever. Um, you you really do seem like a positive person to me. I, and so I don't want to kind of push you into a negative space of feeling. That, no, no. Go but ahead. you must feel, and I would say even spiritually, and the word I have in my mind is that some design just has a, a brutality to it. What I mean is, the failure to see the human is always brutal. Sure. It, it's a, it, right? Because you, you must all the time see a space, walk into a space, mm-hmm. and just feel like n- that human question wasn't, wasn't asked here. Yeah. This is a brutal space okay. that's hard to be in. <laughs> do you, you must feel that. I, I mean, I do. Yeah. And, okay, so I want to just... So you just do, for the record, because yeah. we're, we're recording, so it's on the record. <laughs> yes. So th- my answer is by no means meant to be a negative answer. Right. It's just, it's an objective observation. Exactly. That's yes. great. Okay. That's, that's, that's how I ask so, too. So <laughs> I will yeah. say, it in, I'll say it in this way. So, um, and this may lead to other questions. So it, living in the city of Vancouver, we're very fortunate to have a lot of views of the skyline right. from a lot, a lot of different areas. Um and so when I look at that skyline, I, I think to myself, uh, design intention. So as a designer, whether you, we are architects, industrial designers, fashion designers, designers of programs, whatever, design, gen- design processes work at ease when we have what we call a design intention. Okay. In architecture, we, we do it in a sketch. We call it a party. Okay. And it's something that it's it's sort of our guiding principle through a design process. When we need to ask questions, mm. what should we do? We go back to our design intention. And so generally speaking, you can see intention in design. I see intention as something that I look for. <laughs> yeah. So when I look at 
the skyline of Vancouver, what's the design intention that I mm. see? And I would argue, this, this is just my own yeah. Yeah. observation, yeah. but I would argue that I see very little humanity there. Right. I see an intention to make money. Right. Right. So I see a skyline that reflects the intention of the people that what they were trying to do. They weren't, I don't believe that they're, and I right. should. So you're not castigating them. You're no, just no, saying no, no, no. It's a different the intention thing. is relatively clear. The rel- yeah. The intention <laughs> is clear. You, you And, and yes. you succeeded in yes. your intention. <laughs> you wanted to make money by selling homes and offices and you've done that. And that's yeah. visually what I see here. And if you go to other places and you um, you look at the intention, you can you can see this is this is intended to bring joy. This is intended to create community. This is right. intended to provide safe space. This is intended to make you feel luxurious. This is intended to make you feel that mm. you should exercise. It's, there's intentions there, yeah. right? And and as a designer, as an architect, it's something uh, that I that I observe. I can't help not to observe it. It's I mean, I, I would see. imagine so. Yes. <laughs> So that I think that's yeah, where that's where I like what that I see answer because I think some, that gives a freedom too in some of the it moves from a negative thing to almost an observational thing. Mm-hmm. You walk into motor vehicles office and you, you're able to go like, well, I can see the intention here, and you yeah. can kind of smile at it in a sense. Exactly. And go like this doesn't make me feel particularly great, but they yeah. they achieve their intention, yes. which was to have a space to sign a form. Yes, you know what I mean? that's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. But you know what's nice about intention is that. Sometimes when intention can be felt, the intention some, can sometimes override the failure of design or sort of when design does wow. not attain what it needs to attain. And I think about places like newly designed hospitals. Okay, hospitals are very important to us because that's where we recover. It's where, mm-hmm. it's where we all feel vulnerable, where we're in a place generally where we want to, to improve whatever it is that's happening to us. And now designers are, are looking to have that space reflect that, right. right? But also at the same time, those spaces need to have, they need to be safe. They need yeah. to be prepared for a variety of things. And so those things all take priority, right? It has to be able to, in case there's a disaster, how yeah. do we have to have space? In case that we bang things, it can't, you know, the material has That's to be right. strong. It yeah. has to be clean. All of these things, right? So those things take priority. And so it's hard to have the intention of of warmth and recovery and safety mm. because all of these other points. Right. But sometimes just even though it the design doesn't feel like this is really taking my recovery as a top priority, things like maybe a funny color choice or like a happy picture or mm, a window that's trying, but the window can't be too big because there's safety situations, but they're trying to give you that window. And so that intention, you feel like they're, they're doing their best. Right. And so that intention, I think in some ways, I love that. That's a great reflection. It it almost, it intentions enough at points It is to see it, to go, this didn't work, but the fact that I can see it didn't work makes does connect with my, it does. Right. Exactly. And I mean, I think ultimately like when, when you're talking about, almost these failures that you're seeing, mm-hmm. like you, they're failures, which we would normally associate as negative, but I'm not seeing that like in your face. Like it's almost like you can see like the, the striving towards a humanity within these, these things where you're like, oh, they tried and it didn't quite work, yeah. but they tried. Or they were so limited that that's all yeah. that they could do. Right. Like going, working in a care center or something like in my work, pastoral work or whatever. You see this all the time, of course, right? You see some communal space that's very hard, bright, fluorescent, you know what I mean? Yeah. And somebody has 
taken the time to tape something to the wall. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're like, in a way, it looks worse. Yes. <laughs> but the intention Mimic makes it. me feel good. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. right? Because yeah. you, you, you need the lighting. You need, if, in case there's an emergency, yeah. you need that lighting. And they've got to be able to wipe that floorboard yeah. for, yeah. It, it, yeah. Needs, it needs to be functional, first and foremost, oh, right? That's very interesting. Um, I'd love to get your take on what you're seeing as some of like these big questions being asked within architecture or building in general. Sure. Um, like there's a number of things that it could be, whether it's um, like from an environmental standpoint, how buildings are made sustainably or whether it's, you know, taking into consideration things like climate change or accessibility or like those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. What are kind of like, what do you see as maybe one or two of the really big conversations or things that you think maybe should be the big conversations? Well, well, okay. So that, that's a, a good question. It's a big question. Sorry, big question. Well, and you, you, one of the things you have is certified passive house design. I do. Yes, that's right. So for I want to hold your question. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So a certified house passive designer means I am certified to design a passive house. So a passive house, for those who may not be familiar with it, it's a German way of building uh, a house. And essentially, um, it's, it's essentially having such a thick envelope or such a well-insulated, airtight envelope that you can control the the temperature with a very, or the control the environment with very minimal resource expenditure. Okay, great. So that right now, that sounds like what Germans yeah. would design. Yeah, <laughs> and there and there's the issues with that. Yeah, eco and everything else. And yeah, so yeah. It gets to Allison question: What are the big kind of well? Yeah, so I, I want to quickly just okay. one more thing about the passive house to comparison to what's happening. So if you look at older houses, older houses are not airtight and, and air flows in and out of them. Like this house. Like this house, like, yeah. sure. Or my but, windows. But then the, the argue. so I guess what I, what I would sort of lead with this in the sense of like, you know, addressing or being aware of issues is one thing, but also like I think it's, their discernment is so important in terms of trying to identify issues. And what I mean by that is a passive house, for example, is, is airtight, is well insulated. You're controlling where the air comes in and where it goes out, right? Through your, your HRV, through your doors, through your windows. And that's all great. But we've had houses, we've had shelters throughout the world, throughout history that have let air in and out yeah. all the time, right? So... Yes, there's an energy question there, but there's also a health question, right? There's a health question in that an, a house that lets air pass in and out means that there's air transferring, it's right? Yeah. We can, you can all imagine taking your nice Gore-Tex rain rubber or rubber rain jacket and zipping it up and you know you get that little sweaty film on the yeah. skin, right? But you are protected. But you're protected and you maybe and you can imagine a house, mm-hmm. a house is entirely... So if you put that whole rubber thing over your face... Right? You're, you're starting to get that glaze of sweat or whatever it is, the condensation on your face. And so I, I bring it up because I think when it comes to addressing issues, especially in architecture, I think that there, it, discernment is so important because identifying an issue is important, but also perhaps acknowledging that maybe the identification of that issue maybe is not totally correct or it's not binary, hmm. right? Like passive house is great. It is. But it's not the. But, uh, but the o- but if the only question you're asking is, how do we expend the least amount of energy in that's, this thing? That's right. The, yeah. The binary is false. 
That's correct. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so that was the passive house thing. But, but your question actually wanted uh, the big questions right now in yeah. So two things. Well, the second thing I'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. The first thing is the um, housing crisis. Mm-hmm. There's a housing crisis. There's a housing crisis in Canada, which is bizarre because we have so much dirt. We have so much land. So much space. We have so much space, but yet we have no, we have a housing crisis. It's yeah. crazy. And so uh, there is this attitude that we are going to build more houses and we're going to, we're going to, there's, you have, politicians and policymakers and you have some architects involved as well there sure. this is this is the solution and i would not necessarily argue but i would put something a little bit different on the table and it's not so much finding a uh, a solution to a, to a problem but more of maybe looking at why this where did this problem come from hmm. and i'm not talking about in the physical built sense of where this problem came from. I'm talking about as human beings, where did this problem come from? Okay. I want to give, uh, let's, let's, I'll give you an example. So we've, have you, have you, we've all been to the United States? Yes. Yes. We've been in the United States. Have you been in a hospital in the United States? You have? I have not. You have not. I've been in a few times, right? Not, not admitted as a patient, but yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about a hospital in the United States? Money. Right, money, right? Actually, that's true. Because right away, I thought when, when you asked healthcare. that, I thought I've been in both a private hospital and a public, and exactly. experience is insanely different. It's yeah. insanely different. That's right. In Canada, have we all been to hospitals? Yes. Yeah. How many of us think about money when we go to the hospital? Zero. It's it's right. never. It maybe maybe on. It, can I afford the prescription? Yes. Maybe is is the yeah. extra recover is the extra that's rehab. recovery and leaving. Yeah, though, is that is that there. can I afford that? Do I have health? Like do I? Have, that's yeah. not, that's not in the acute. That, care. It's not in the acute. Yeah. But otherwise, you never think about money, right? And so I, I bring this up as an example because I think it has to do with how we see housing. Right. In Canada, we see housing as a commodity. We see it as something that we can buy, yeah. we can sell. It is it is no different. Than a Big Mac, it's no different than a car. It is, it is something that I can have, I can make money from, I can sell, I can do these things. And it's the same thing the way the United States sees healthcare. But in Canada, we don't see healthcare like that. Healthcare is a standard thing. There's no profit to be made in healthcare. And so I think it's not so much hmm. the solution to the housing crisis, it's changing how we see housing. Housing is not a commodity, it's not. Right. Hmm. It's not. Yeah. It shouldn't how be. How it's actually experienced and how it connects with, yeah, yeah. Right? It, like, and, and you're, yeah, right. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't yeah. be. But it's like, my take is, well, if you don't think, if you think that healthcare is not a commodity, yeah. your health is not a commodity. How can we think that... Basic shelter. Basic even. shelter is a commodity. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's that change, it's that shift as, as, as a population, as a country, to say like, no. Shelter is not a commodity. We all have shelter. And, and it's not a, it's an out there sort of radical idea. There's countries on this planet <laughs> that say, you know, everyone gets shelter. Yeah. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter how you are functioning in society. Everybody gets shelter. Just like in our country, no matter how things are happening in your life, if you need yeah. health care, you get health care. End of story. 
And I think that's really how to to start looking for hmm. ways to deal with our housing crisis. Yeah, so what I'm hearing you say is like more dealing uh, instead of dealing with what we're seeing like as like the symptom mm-hmm. instead of just that while there may be ways in which addressing those symptoms is is valid or perhaps helpful that ultimately unless we actually address this root issue of how we view housing you can't like you like with medical things you can't if you only deal with the surface it's just going to come back mm-hmm. so do you see some of these um, some of these more symptomatic projects that people are proposing and stuff like that, mm-hmm. is, is there a part where you go, that's not going to fix it? So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a hard tension. Cause you're like, in some ways we do need more housing built, mm-hmm. but we actually need to address a deeper problem. Exactly. So I was part of a think group in 2019 and we, it took place in Vancouver and they had, members of provincial government. They had some, they had Van City there. Yeah, they had some developers. And the idea was how we deal with the housing crisis. And five years ago. Yeah, five <laughs> years ago. So here, five years ago, I remember the, who's, I can't remember which, which person on the panel said this. They said, oh, no, no. It was the, um, it was someone who was working in land. And they said, that land in Vancouver is, we all know, it's very, 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 very expensive. Yes. It's very expensive. They said that even if the land was given for free for these projects to build multifamily housing projects, the construction itself would still make them so far outside of market value. Like they would be luxury. Wow. So you, so you're you're saying you're someone saying hey I will give you these these million these hundred million dollar pieces of land, right? And you can't even even if you were just to get it for free you can't build something that people can afford. So, but to me when I heard that 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 was kind of in some ways uh, a seed for me because it was like okay so so hold a second we can't like the land is free and we still can't afford to build. So what's the problem here? The problem is that we are attaching a monetary value to shelter. We're attaching a monetary value to land. Who says that land is 300, 300 million dollars? Well, so we're going back to scale of time. Let's go, let's go 20 years ago. Was it 300 million dollars then? (laughs) No. So, so, and this is, and this is, we can talk about this is the way the world works, but I would argue that it's not. It's the way that we see the world as a group. Of course, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way well, by default. And it, and it doesn't have to. <laughs> it works it, that it, way it, only in our understanding. Exactly. Yeah. And if we all say, hey, what's, let's change our understanding, well then, who, like, that, that crisis now maybe is not a crisis anymore. Yeah. Right? But it's like, no, no, we're going we're gonna to fix this crisis by using the same broken attitudes and tools that we've been using in the past. So how, like, so, so hey, I'm gonna fix this hole with a hammer. Yeah, exactly. Well, well no, 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 no. Uh, this hammer doesn't work. Get a bigger hammer. Yeah. Get a sledge. <laughs> right? Like that's that's gonna fix the. It's hole. a really powerful tool. But that, yeah. that let's calls, get a jackhammer. That calls for hope in a way that is um, kind of subversive or kicks against the way that things are going. Because in meanwhile, you do your work. Do my work. And this this societal change that you're speaking about, this change in vision, um, isn't happening 
to large scale right now, but it is happening in some hearts and minds, in some design, yes. in some. So then you are compelled by this hope. Sure. That, that of it, it, which is then connects to work like ours, right? Yes. Where you have a sense of, <laughs> oh, you know, faith and religion have been drawn in such terrible ways, back to the word brutal ways, like yes. dehumanizing ways. Um, if we speak about this in more hopeful terms, it sometimes feels like a small thing within. But if you actually believe that that's real, mm-hmm. then you you keep going there because you trust in this kind of difference, even if like back to, I don't know, Reinhold Niebuhr or something, right? Anything worth doing can't be achieved in your lifetime. Right. Right. So you keep going that. So then with that in mind, I have a very kind of directly spiritual question um, sure. to do with prayer. One of the things we quote fairly often is Simone Weil, a Jewish contemplative theologian who said, attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. Mm -hmm. It presupposes faith and love. I I think about attention Mm -hmm. when I think about design Mm -hmm. or space. Um, How might design and being in a space become a form of prayer. So you don't have to say like, dear God, I now pray to you, you know, but, but that mm-hmm. as you picture someone in a space, there is something almost prayerful mm-hmm. about what you've designed, how, how that allows mm-hmm. someone to exist in a space. Yeah. You know, attention. And, I mean, I love the quote. Yeah. Um, yeah. She would say like, if you pay attention to anything, yeah, it's anything, a, a spider yeah. or a whatever, like right. You you find yourself well, you're you're praying. It's it's true, and so I guess where my mind goes with that, and it's always sort of gone with it, and it goes. The expression of it is maybe not as exciting as, as the idea, but the idea is that to be attentive requires us to make space and prepare ourselves to appreciate the time that's in front of us in this moment. Right when we pray, I'm not. I'm not thinking, oh, I got to pray for this. I got to pray for that. When I meditate or pray, I don't think about, oh, I should have prayed for that. I, sh- I should have meditated for that. No, when, when prayer is a beautiful thing because it, it requires us to be present in this moment. In this moment, I am praying to God. I am having a conversation with God. I'm listening to God in this moment. And something about being in this moment creates space for that communion, right? And that space, and this is where I think where spirituality for us as human beings is is the point to expand, is that space does not need to close after I say amen. Yes. Right? (laughs) It doesn't. In actual fact, it can stay there and even yeah. better it can actually expand it was, it was more prayerful yeah outside of those bounds right it, it expands yeah. it expands now into what i was saying like the, the maybe not as exciting stuff like when i sit in front of my computer I, I often say this to my friends i say you know today god was with me when i was drafting and you know i don't even get to say i'm, I'm romantically drafting with pencils and yeah. and angles and stuff on yeah. a board i'm i'm there <laughs> click and mouse click, click. yeah this is me drafting uh, yeah, right I, this is right and so it's like god was there with me God was there with me, right? Because this, but it starts with, with making that space to be present and to have the space to be attentive. And that space to be attentive also creates space to be compassionate. It also creates space to be, to be humble, 
to have humility. Humility is a, we talked about this. Yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in humility as a design tool. It, it's, it's such a, it's such, it, it comes in so many different ways. It sounds so abstract, but yet it is, it is something that I rely on heavily. It's so, but it's creating that space in time, in the present moment to have these things come to you. And to, and to be present in your work. And, and it's so, anything that we do. I wouldn't want to put you on the spot with that, but I'm really intrigued. And, and you have mentioned to me before that the importance of humility and design. Mm-hmm. Um, bring that out a little more for us. Like, what is that? If you're asking questions around humility mm-hmm. and design, how might you ask those? Or Yeah, how does that actually play yeah. out? What does it mean if design is humble? Or is... Sure. So... Um, So it's in some ways, it's kind of like a design intention okay. in some ways. Uh, it's not a design intention, but it's relatable in, in, in a sense of that humility plays a role at a variety of scales, at a variety of times, in a variety of actions that need to happen in design. Okay. And I would say that it also doesn't ex- it's It's difficult to talk about it in a vacuum. I think there's other aspects to it. Right, of right? course. Yeah. So humility opens the door for friends, like for a friend, uh, curiosity is a great friend to have, right, in design. When, when we design, yeah, okay. it, it's like, especially as technology develops, every day, relatively speaking, I know less. It, like, it, it's just fact. <laughs> it's just fact. Somebody, there's no other way. There's somebody yeah, on yeah. the planet, m- multiple people on the planet have been innovating as I was sleeping last night. So you night. can't keep up with that. I cannot yeah. keep up with that. So by definition, I actually know less daily. And the more people we have on this planet, the more money and the more resources we pump into technology, technology is growing, and that's what I used to build. I use yeah. drafting software. I use physical materials. I need to know how these things all work. And so by definition, I am knowing less by the day as, as my life goes on. And I will know less relatively speaking to the amount of knowledge in the world when I'm older than when I was younger. So that's kind of a weird sort of thing to think about. (laughs) And so that humility to wake up in the morning and say, yes, I know a few things, Mm -hmm. but maybe some of those things I don't know anymore, actually. Yeah. Or maybe they're not, they're out of date or maybe they're, they're not valid anymore. That's really great to describe that. And so to be able to then approach design and saying like, I maybe have an answer, yeah. but I have a million no answers. And that ability to be like, I don't know. I'm, yes, architect, master builder. I don't master know. Master builder, such right? a term, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm curious. And that curiosity, that humility hmm. is actually a really soft way to explore and learn, right? Like if, if you, I had a, I had a friend tell me, um, he was a, he's a music teacher and he came to Canada uh, this year to do some, uh, a third or fourth, uh, another degree. And he had, <laughs> he had felt, and he was having issues because he was like, listen, you know, I've been doing music and I have all these degrees. I've been doing it for, you know, 30 years and I'm in there and I, I feel so, I feel so dumb and I feel like people are constantly challenging me. Hmm. I said to him, you know, this is an opportunity to say, like, you don't need to approach. We don't need to approach our work with the sense of, I know. We just yeah. need to approach the work with a sense of, like, 
this is the history that I bring. And I don't know. This is the, like, I know. And the history that I have, these are two separate things. And we, as human beings, I think it's, it's, it's common for us to say, I've experienced this. Yeah. So I know this. Therefore, I'm an expert. Mm. Or Therefore, I'm an expert. Yeah. I, and it I, closes the conversation closes rather the conversation. than opens yeah. it. That's what I pick up from you as you speak yeah. about humility. We always, one of our sayings in our theological work is um, from Karl Barth, who says, like, true theology is modest, which mm-hmm. is, you could say, humble. Sure. And then what he's drawing out is that if the thing is true and real, it's bigger than your description uh, of it. Uh, Always. Anyway, yes. Mm-hmm. So you can be modest or humble mm-hmm. in the thing because you're not trying to make something true. You're open to it. So that, that's such a. Um, I, the fact that you're talking about this in relation to architecture, mm. yeah. which most of us would think of as a much more well precise kind of, yeah, kind of closed, closed lines like, and kind I, of. I love how you're talking about us, yeah. about this. Like I, for me, I'm I'm seeing connections in how you've spoken about the collaborative nature, the relationship that you have with clients, um, and even the fact that you're, you say, I'm practicing architecture, because you're like kind of pulling down some of those you know, structures of power and authority yeah. that we have <laughs> in culture, where someone's like, well, I'm a doctor, so therefore, yes. sort of a thing. And I'm like, very much not sensing that that is how you are wishing to present yourself. <laughs> or like, father so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, there's yes. just the, the religious um, terms that can be used. For sure. That. Yeah, and for me, I'm hearing so much of this coming back to just how how you view your work in like the recognition of the humanity, and that if you're mm-hmm. truly going to relate to somebody else, you don't. It's not a relationship of condescension. Never. Like I'm going to tell you how I'm going to fix all these problems right. for you, but let's have conversations around this, and maybe we can figure this out together. Right. It's it's beautiful. <laughs> I, you know what? I also like your comment about like you. I thought you were very very eloquent by saying fix these problems. I think oftentimes mm. it's let's fix your problem. Ah, uh, yeah. Let me fix your yeah. problem. And I think that's very problematic. I, right away, that that relationship right away turns in into a very strange sort of hierarchical yeah. sort of thing, right? Um, that's really that's really <laughs> interesting. It, now this must. <laughs> I keep bringing Are the negative. Are all architects I keep, feel like yeah, this? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I, I didn't imagine, know that. <laughs> I would imagine it's not a given in architecture that this is the approach. I mean, some people, some some clients want that expert well, who is not humble. Well, and I would mm-hmm. imagine that some people, in one sense, like are pragmatic about like these structures need to be built and therefore like this, mm-hmm. this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. But clearly, you've taken a bit of a different approach. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, people that trust other people to design buildings want those buildings to stand. Yeah. Yes. And be safe. They should. Yes. And, and, and as somebody who's taken on that responsibility, yeah. it is of utmost importance that they are safe. They are sound, that they, they provide right. protection from the weather. They, right. All that stuff, right? So, um it's, I th- again, I've kind of said it a few times now. It, it's the, I, I have experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have done things. Yeah. 
<laughs> right? To say to sit here and say that I have not done right. things or those I'm experience. so humble that I don't even know if I know yeah. what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't, exactly. I don't even like so humility Why are you asking me about right. architecture? Yes. That's clearly not how you're describing yeah. humility. Yes. Yeah. So it's like so there are I do know things. Yes. Right? And I and I'm familiar with things and I have and and but somebody may be more familiar with things. Right? So as the other interesting thing about my work is that although I'm required to understand and have conversations in a variety of different fields. In some ways, my work is to be able to say, hey, I know how a building stands, but he knows how a building stands in hurricanes, in tornadoes, Mm -hmm. in earthquakes. And so I'm going to talk to him and I'm going to bring him in. And I know how a building stays warm, but he knows how it stays warm in case Vancouver gets snowmageddon, right. in case it goes down to minus 40, in case in it goes up to plus 40, in case yeah. of climate change. He knows how to do that. So I'm going to bring him too. So as a, as a working or practicing as an architect, a lot of our role is to be able to find people that know more than it's us resourcing. And, yeah. and, and asking them to, to collaborate together, right? And to understand, to have that humility to say, you know, this project would be better off with somebody who knew more than me in this aspect of it, yeah. right? And so I'm going to invite that person to be part of this. And so when we work on like big projects, we have consultant teams of 20, 50, 100 people sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they're all very, very, very important. But as, a, as, as holding the seat as, as the working architect, you have to be able to say, okay, you, it's time for you to come out. Yeah, you this. come out, yeah. okay, say your piece. This is this is based on your experience. Thank you. Now you, mm-hmm. right? And so this is, and so that sort of collaboration, that sort of almost um, just bringing a, bringing the group together is is kind of a lot That's of fantastic. Yeah. Um, so as we move to to close, I have a couple things in my mind. One is you're you're traveling again soon back mm-hmm. to um, where you were trained. That's I think right. Back to Japan. Yeah. Um, just before I have one last question. Uh, sure. There's a sensibility you pick up in some of the ways that you were trained. So that would have to do with place, probably Japan, but then also the people. 100%. Who were, um, how do you experience some of that? Like you bring a particular sensibility to your work mm-hmm. that I would, to put it kind of crassly, comes from there or comes from that sure. way of seeing the world. From that experience. Tell us about yeah. that a little bit. Might be. Well, you know what's interesting about that is actually a lot of that experience I feel came um like post living there like reflective Mm. really um yeah um so you come back and then you realize oh what i had there uh, informs my vision yeah yeah yeah. so there's 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 an element of that there's also an element of thinking that you know nothing's changed for me as a human being and then coming back after eight years and people being like wow Things have changed for you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? right. You um, see differently. You see it differently, right? Uh, I had uh, someone just recently go, in, go to Japan, and they, they had never been to Japan before, and w- we have a lot of intimate conversations, and she said to me, I understand so much more about mm. you from being in Tokyo mm. for 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> for 24 hours? For 24 hours. She's like, I understand. Right? She, she was in a very busy... Um, a, a busy, very busy part of the city, but it was very quiet, and people were, were you know, very considerate of each other and, and trying to keep, you know, keep in their space and keep, 
keep the the noise down mm-hmm. and keep this you know this like only take what they need sort of thing and when you have a when you uh, live uh, in a in a population like that like when consideration and don't get me wrong the, the it's just like every other culture it has its own faults yeah, yeah. right but but one really great thing about not being from that culture but living in that culture you're able to sort of see a lot of the really beautiful things that you can apply back into your own life my one of the things I'd like to close with my father would always always says this to me my, I'm from a, a a mixed cultural family my my mother's Mennonite my father's Pakistani and my father would always say to me um, you know when you meet somebody from a different place or a different country or a different culture this is an opportunity for you to to learn about the great things yes. yes. That are is from that as them as a human being and incorporate that and you and and my my dad is Christian, and he and he came from Pakistan so that that's a very yeah, that's a, that's a history right that's a very a challenging history for him, and he said you know you being in Canada, we have that luxury to say, hey we got all these things you're you're from there you're from there you're from there, bring all the good things. Leave all the, all the bad. bad things. All right. And we really, we genuinely do have that opportunity. And so I, I kind of, in J- so Japan, I really have, having that sort of, that guidance from my father, it was like, what's really beautiful about this, about this culture? And I can bring that back and I can incorporate that into my life and I can re- incorporate that into my relationships. And, and so, yeah. Well, thank you so yes. much. I have, we, we, I have a quote in my mind. From you, okay. Um, well, I'll read it. I was going to mention it in the, like as we record banter and stuff, but that good good architecture cannot exist without a human being, <laughs> um, and we'll flesh that out as we talk more after this interview. But uh, uh, brings to mind for us that good theology also can't exist without a human being. It's uh, and we're so grateful for your work, for your um, I'd say the word like collaboration with us. You you recognize mm. when people even in different fields, are asking similar questions, and I think that contributes to the hope that we have. And so blessings in your work. I know you've got a couple treehouse things you're working on. Yes, we do. Very cool projects um, here and potentially in other places in the world. And uh, so blessings and all that work, and we look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Rector's Covered is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our Covered Master is Ken Bell. Rector's Covered is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscovered.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Covered by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. Thank you.